Hello and welcome to the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson. I am in Costa Rica today and will be here for a little while. And Nathan, where where are you? I'm with Nathan Fox, as always. I'm in San Francisco. What are you doing in Costa Rica, Ben? Well, um, you know, there's this, a small lull after the February LSAT because the June LSAT is pretty far away. Yep. And so I thought it'd be a good time to get away. And so we came down to Costa Rica. How'd you pick Costa Rica? Where are you in Costa Rica? How's your Spanish? Uh, <laughs> my Spanish is horrible. I don't know any Spanish, really. We are, let's see, so we're just outside of San Jose on a, like, I think it was a working farm before. Okay. And then they turned it into an Airbnb. And so we're kind of close to a cloud forest, which we have not gone to yet, but it's definitely cloud. We're like up on a mountain and it's cloudy, uh, not where we're at, but not too far away. And I guess that's where the cloud forest is. So okay. we're going to go check that out. Um, <laughs> speaking of that, we're, when we were coming over from the airport, the driver, I was asking him about the cloud forest and he, he spoke English. And I said, well, is there anything we should watch out for? And he said, well, there's a lot of snakes, but the snakes, you know, um, they when they hear you coming, they tend to go away. So I was like, okay, that's cool. And um, then he said, and you know, it's very, very, very unlikely that you'd run into a jaguar or a puma. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember which it was, but it didn't matter. I was like, well, <laughs> when you say very unlikely... <laughs> What do you mean by that? You know, I, I didn't, uh, we, we didn't really get beyond the subjectivity of that, that phrase, but, um, so I don't know what that means, but apparently it's very unlikely. So, wow. I was expecting you to say tarantula. You're pretty much guaranteed, I think, to see tarantulas down there. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. We didn't talk about spiders, but <laughs> when I was in Ecuador, I had to kill a scorpion which sounds pretty badass, except for it was like less than one inch long. But it was on the wall uh, in the room where I was sleeping. Wow. Uh, we were at like some, this was a long, a long time ago. We were at some like weird eco lodge kind of place. There were two things that happened while we were there. One is there was a scorpion on the room. I had to grab a shoe and smash yeah. him on the wall. I know it's not very eco friendly of me, but uh, <laughs> it's a scorpion. After all your talk about faking Bart. <laughs> yeah. And then the there was a couple that was in the room next to me, and they woke up in the middle of the night with a trail of red ants that had started going across their bed while they were sleeping, like across their bodies, across their bed. They just woke up with like a whole army of red ants that had just decided to maraud through their room in the middle wow. of the night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that was that was where was that? That was like in the south of Ecuador, which is probably pretty far from where you are. Costa Rica is in Central America. Yes. Okay. Yeah, Central America. Yeah. Is, that's what I think it is. Awesome. <laughs> man. I think I am. Yeah. So did you? Did I know you were going down there? Is this like a spur of the moment thing, or did you plan this out, or what? Well, I wasn't really involved with the planning. My wife was mainly figuring uh, it out, and uh -huh. I was just trying to figure out. Okay, what. What day am I supposed to be available? And then when are we leaving? So. And you have the kids with you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. 
Yeah, Olsen Family Adventure. Yeah, the kids are pretty good too. The flights can always be tricky, but they were they were good. When we got down here, uh, one other observation. This is just. I mean, I'm just not really familiar with Central America, but there's not a lot of uh, order, I should say, to the driving situation here. There's just a lot of... Okay, yeah. You can't tell if it's one lane or two lanes, but people act like it's one lane and they act like it's two lanes and motorcycles are always driving in and out of everywhere, you know? Yeah. And I said um, to the driver, I said, yeah, you know, there doesn't seem to be like, you just kind of wait, people let you in or they don't let you in. And uh, We started talking about that and he said... Um, that his girlfriend can get to the airport in about 15 minutes faster than he can. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's interesting. And he, he said, it's only a like 40 minute drive. So, you know, that's a pretty substantial decrease in time. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, what, I, yeah, what, why is that? And he's like, well, you, you kind of wait for people to let you in and people let her in uh, faster, mm-hmm. a lot more. And I said, oh, okay. Yeah. That's, Cool. So, yeah, I you know very different system down here of getting around, but we we made it. So, oh, that's awesome. You said you'd be down there for like a month, right? Yeah, I mean the most expensive thing for us, at least, because we're bringing all the kids down, is the airfare. Yeah. So staying a little bit longer didn't cost that much more, and it kind of made sense yeah. to take advantage of all the money we spent on the airplane tickets. No, of course. I like doing that too. If I'm going to travel, I would like to be somewhere for a while and feel like I live there. And like you say, the travel is the hard part once you're there. Um, yeah. People say you can live pretty cheap in Costa Rica. Yeah. yeah so this, uh, so today this is episode 54, which is pretty crazy. And we're going to talk about things so some a lot of people just took the february lsat of course and there some people are thinking about restudying for the june exam so we'll tackle some questions on that we have some questions or some advice on going to the lsac forms these are the forms that lsac hosts in different cities uh, from time to time and i guess advice on where to find or this is advice on waitlisting Right or getting waitlisted? Where to find waitlist advice? Our our super fan Kaylee dug up a list of uh, of our own episodes that talk about waitlist advice, and uh, because this is time of year for waitlist. Oh, oh, and wow. so we'll give you a list of episodes to listen to uh, if you want waitlist advice from us. Okay, yeah, sorry, I got mixed up on that. So then um, we have a question from someone who uh, has a science and engineering degree, I guess, uh, or in that, that area. And they have a question about getting into law school, given us, I think a slightly lower GPA, right? Yep. At the end of the show, we'll also have an interview with attorney Kevin Hazlett. Cool. And then I think you had some things, right. To give us an update about the February test. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, just kind of random thoughts. This is the time of year when I hear from people who just took the February LSAT or I always hear reports from every LSAT. But this year I heard two that I had never heard before that I found amusing. I'm sure it wasn't amusing for the people who were actually (laughs) in these situations. But um, shit just goes bad on the day of the test and in a lot of cases. And um, here are a couple examples. My student, Ayung, took the test in London because she's in school there. And there were, I had never heard this one before, but there were mice or at least a mouse in her testing room. Okay. Um, 
She said she did not freak out. She said it was not a rat, and so the, it didn't bother her. Uh, a mouse. She said it was kind of cute, and it did not bother her. But <laughs> I can imagine um, people freaking out if they saw a mouse in the testing room. So the, just as I, I like to talk about these kind of horror stories because I, I try to get people planning ahead, right? And to to remember that yes, it's great if you can take the LSAT only once, but sometimes shit goes wrong and you might have to take it more than once. So you should probably plan for that eventuality. Uh, my student Lauren, who's in Florida, there was literally, this is almost like a joke, but there was literally a marching band that was continually warming up outside her testing room. She said they weren't even playing songs. They were just kind of blasting on all of their different instruments, banging on their oh. drums and whatnot. And it yeah. was like right outside of the room where they were doing the test. She said, in that case, they stopped the test more than once. The proctors went outside and tried to, like, talk to the marching band. She said the proctors were on the phone with LSAC trying to find a, a new venue. Oh, my gosh. Ultimately, yeah, ultimately, they just went, they ended up just coming back in and saying, like, hey, sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. We're going to have to just restart the test. I don't understand why the marching band couldn't move somewhere. <laughs> One would think that the marching band could move or they could find a different testing room or like something. Yeah. Wait, marching band. They march, right? It's like, what? Yeah. They could just march down the street. <laughs> and hey, okay, guys, practice your fucking marching. Nah, anyway. So, and I feel really bad because, you know, this is a student who she was practice testing in the 160s. She is trying to improve to get into law school kind of late. She's looking, she's, she's applying this current cycle and the schools that she's applying to have told her that she needs to get a slightly higher LSAT score. She'll get admitted and she was more than prepared. I mean, she was overprepared for this test. I had no doubt that she was going to score in the 160s somewhere, which was going to be plenty for the kind of lower middle ranked schools that she's applying to. And mm -hmm. now because of this crazy she said she had a really hard time she said she she ended up making it like not nearly as far through the sections as she normally would very hard hard time focusing so i don't know I, she was asking me for advice i i told her probably not a lot you can do maybe write a letter to the lsac and explain the whole thing but i told her that the best the best case was going to be Maybe they would let her cancel the score without it counting against her. Mm. Maybe. And that maybe they would give her a free retake. Maybe. Was that her third time? No, no. It was only her second time. So she's, you know, I'm also telling her, but I've been telling her this from the beginning. I've been telling her, hey, you're coming at this pretty late in the cycle. Why don't you consider just waiting and taking the test in June and applying at the beginning of the next admission cycle so she still might do that but you know she's 20 and she's very sensible i mean she's she's one of the most sensible 20 year olds i have ever met but 20 year olds tend to be in a hurry and mm -hmm. so she's she's just ready for the next step in her life and you know as much as i've counseled her and tried to talk her into the idea that she doesn't have to go this cycle and and she says there are all the right things. I mean, I think that she understands it on a maybe theoretical level. She understands it, but as it applies to her own personal life, <laughs> she's, she's just ready to go. So, hmm. yeah. Yeah. And which is too bad. Cause you know, I'm, I'm like, you know, it's $150,000, right? Um, but 
it sounds like maybe she's just going to do it. I think a a big part of this is kind of emotional, right? It's the same reason people buy houses that they shouldn't buy. (laughs) Right. They kind of, it's a lot of money, but when it gets to be a lot of money, I think you stop thinking about the money and you start thinking about, I don't know, what you want to be doing or where you want to live, which are important things, but you got to consider the whole package. Yeah. You start conflating it with all sorts of other shit, right? I mean, she's mm-hmm. so, so the like where you want to live thing, it's like, well, there's nothing stopping you from living wherever you want to live. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, law school is only going to tie you to one place. If you want to live in that place, why don't you just go move there? See what it's like for a while. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, I, people get a lot of pa- uh, parental pressure, I'm sure. Peer pressure, I'm sure. And it is it is crazy to, you know, I, I'm, I'm 40. <laughs> She's 20. And I feel like I have all the time in the world. And she feels like she's got to get it done, got to get it done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of strange as you age, kind of mellow out and get a little more perspective that that you really aren't in in a, in a hurry. Yeah, speaking of her, uh, that's weird that the proctors, I mean, I guess it's not weird, but they, they stopped it so many times. You'd hope that they'd stop it once and come up with a solution and then move on. There was, I can't remember if we were talking about this on the show or if I was talking to someone in class, but they were saying that the fire alarm went off. Were we talking about this? I don't, I don't know. Okay, so the fire alarm went off and they stopped the test until they could figure out how to, whether it was legit or, you know, and then whether they could just turn it off permanently and then start again. And that's what they ended up doing. They turned off the fire alarm and then they they let the test takers resume and it was like 10 minutes later or something. And for some people, you know, it threw them off, but for other people it was like a huge benefit because they just sat there and thought they had to close their tests of course but they just thought about the games or whatever they were working on and then as soon as the time started again they picked up from there so i think you can kind of turn some of these things to your advantage especially if you anticipate them some people get nervous when i start talking about bad things that have happened to people but i'm like when if something like that happens to you it's not going to be as crazy a lot of the the damage comes from the fact that you're surprised, not that it's that actually damaging. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell people to just kind of imagine whatever the circumstances are, just imagine that the person to your left is freaking out about them. And the person to your right is freaking out about those circumstances and that you just have to react better to it than your competition does. Right. Mm -hmm. You can kind of just sort of give, I don't know. You imagine yourself observing the room from, god's eye view or whatever of just kind Mm -hmm. of thinking of like hey it's not actually an emergency but some people in here are going to act like this is an emergency and all you have to do is just kind of keep your wits about you and then you have gained a relative advantage at least to the field but yeah in, in those kinds of circumstances where you actually end up getting extra time to think about the logic game right you it's not like you totally forget it you you were Mm -hmm. just working on it Mm -hmm. And you can kind of think about some scenarios in your head or maybe just figure out that game. Um, Like, for example, the third, again, we've talked about this before, I think, but the third game from the December 2015 test. Yeah. God damn, that shit's easy. And and it's like, but the only reason why it's hard is because people people just see it, they don't know what it is, and then they just freak out. Mm -hmm. But I think that if you just have... It, like this is one of those games it's very satisfying as a teacher because i like to turn the light bulb on you know 
But when I get, when I talk people through a couple scenarios and then they're like, huh, that's all there is to that game? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing we don't know is what order the people pick in. That's it. Yeah. And once we know what order we, they pick in, then we know exactly what they do. It's yeah. very simple. The rules are very simple. All you have to do is follow the rules. And so, yeah, I can see how a, a fire alarm there would, would maybe help you to figure that out because it could take mm. you a couple minutes. But once it clicks, I think then that game is just a piece of cake. Yeah. Anyhow, have you, um, did we talk about this? I have two TV shows to recommend to the audience. Oh, okay. And I yeah, can't, go for it. I can't remember whether I, cause I hate m most lawyer shows. Okay. Like suits yeah. just pisses yep. me off mm -hmm. um, because I think it's so unrealistic and I, yeah. I I hate shit that just like over glorifies the legal profession. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> two very practical, well, one very practical recommendation. Everybody's been talking about it. Making a murderer on Netflix. Okay. You, mm -hmm. you heard of this? Have you seen this? I've heard of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Documentary like like framed or something. Right. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> he was framed. 20 years ago and he he did do like 18 years for a crime that he did not commit mm. then he gets out has a civil lawsuit against the people who put him in prison mm -hmm. and then gets can uh, then gets accused of another murder mm. and so the the show is about the trials where he he's where he is on trial especially his murder trial for this oh. uh, for the second offense the first one he definitely did not do he definitely did get like railroaded the first time and yeah. then now he's getting prosecuted again for a different crime and hmm. so it's a mystery um but it's a documentary and i love oh, so it this is a true story it's a it's a true story and it's fantastic for all of the it has so much actual courtroom footage and so it's just, you get to see the whole defense team. You get to see the whole prosecution side. You get to see them immediately go from the courtroom huh. to the press conference. So you get to see kind of what they do when they're not in court and how they're, they're definitely fighting this legal battle in the courtroom, but also in the press. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw, I found it to be fascinating. I saw more real lawyering in the course of watching 10 episodes of making a murderer than I did in three years of law school. I mean, for sure. Mm -hmm. it, it's almost, I feel like it should be mandatory yeah. viewing. If you have any interest in law school at all, I think you should watch making a murderer. By the way, cool. You know, when I went to law school, I had no interest in criminal law. I, I always get mm -hmm. worried when people say they have no interest in criminal law. I, I kind of feel like if you want to be a lawyer, you should be interested in lawyering Mm -hmm. If you want to know about lawyering, I think criminal law is an important part of that. Nobody sees as much yep. court time as criminal lawyers do. And so, and, and you know, the yep. whole, the whole point of, of like legal work, even when you're doing contracts and that kind of stuff, you, you always have an eye to like what happens if this gets litigated. And so mm -hmm. you, you kind of, if litigation is at the root of it, then you need to know about litigation so anyway, I I found it to be a fascinating show. People are really talking about it. It's controversial. It's really good. Making a murder. It's available on huh. Netflix. What's the controversy? Uh, whether or not he did it, people are up in arms. You know, it's like this. It's like free Stephen Avery. You know, he he. he you know, they people think he's wrongly 
accused or whatever. Did you did you yeah. listen to Serial the podcast? No, a lot of people in the cl- my class were and they were saying talking about it, but yeah, Serial is the same thing. It was like you know, is this kid wrongly convicted, wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, whatever you know? Did did he do this crime? And it's just sort yeah. of a mystery, but it's a real life mystery with you know much. It's obviously got real stakes because these are real people. I think that dude did it in Serial. I'm sorry, people. I'm gonna get hate mail for that. But (laughs) I think the dude did it. Anyway, Making a Murderer is really interesting. I recommend it. And then I also have been watching just recently another show about lawyering. This is a fiction called Better Call Saul. Okay. Mm -hmm. Did you watch Breaking Bad then? No. Again, my friends swore by it. But when when my one friend said, well, just watch the first three seasons and then you'll get into it. I was like. I don't think I can commit to three seasons <laughs> to get into it. But. Well, I loved Breaking Bad right off the bat. I mean, Brian Cranston right is bat. an amazing actor. That show is super well written. It's super gritty. It's awesome, funny. It's dramatic. It's just, it's you know, if you like um, The Wire or if you like The Sopranos or if you like uh, any of the best of modern TV drama, you will mm-hmm. like Breaking Bad if you can handle the grit of it, I think. Okay. Um, but Breaking Bad is just an awesome TV show. I think everybody would. Everybody who's seen it is like, oh yeah, this is top five TV show of all time. Breaking mm-hmm. Bad, and you can binge that on Netflix or whatever Amazon. Better Call Saul is a spinoff of Breaking Bad, and it's about Saul Goodman, who is the attorney, the criminal attorney, criminal mm-hmm. attorney <laughs> in mm-hmm. in Breaking Bad. And it's like sort of how Saul Goodman came to be Saul Goodman. It's got a couple other characters from Breaking Bad as well are in Better so Call as in, Saul. So let me read into your tone there. You're saying that he's not he's not a ethical ter- attorney. <laughs> it's a joke from the show. You don't. Oh, the, okay. There's one character says to another sh- another character. He's like because because they are criminals. They're they're Breaking Bad. The premise of Breaking Bad is he like sells meth or something, right? He's a high school chemistry teacher who decide he he's uh, diagnosed with cancer and he wants to support his family needs to make a bunch of money starts manufacturing methamphetamine selling methamphetamine to support his family gets himself predictably into all sorts of trouble it's a highly mm-hmm. dramatic super scary uh show but it also has this comic side to it and Saul Goodman the attorney is a lot of comic relief in breaking bad that's kind of the, the whole shtick about Saul Goodman is that he's not just a criminal lawyer. He's a criminal lawyer. <laughs> so <Yes>. he's, <laughs> he's like, he's, he, he knows how to help his clients because he himself, you know, he's got some shady dealings and he, he knows how to protect his criminal clients. So anyway, mm-hmm. Better Call Saul is a really fantastic. I've only watched, uh, seven or eight episodes of it so far of season one but that's now just they they just put that on netflix now so you can binge better call saul and i i really highly recommend that i like both i like better call saul too because i think the lawyering in it is better than the lawyering that you're gonna see in suits or some other bullshit show that like yeah makes it look all glamorous this does not make it look glamorous in the slightest well like super clever too it's all like this and it's not that you aren't trying to be smart and thoughtful and clever as an attorney, but like it's to an extreme that's ridiculous. Like, gotcha, right. gotcha, gotcha. Oh yeah, like it's always just this wizardry in the courtroom, and it's not 
none of the like actual gritty like work that's involved you know the mountains of documents and the the yeah so anyways i recommend both of those and i wanted to give a shout out um if you like hearing me ramble about uh media shit i have another podcast it's called the watcher you can find it at uh on itunes the watcher podcast uh or the watcherpodcast.com but my buddy Mike and I talk about all of the movies and video games and TV shows and everything. And we've now done 10 episodes. So uh, if you're interested in hearing more about the TV shit and video game shit that I like, you can go to thewatcherpodcast.com. I have too much time well, on my hands and I, I'm i not going to Costa Rica. So that's what I do. Well, it just uh, I started chuckling because it has sort of a an ominous feel like the watcher, like you're some like big brother. Yep. That's right. No, it's it's uh we we actually pulled that name from um Dr. Dre. It's Dr. Dre. Oh, Dr. Dre. Yeah. You're you're tapping into all my my cultural knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And it also it's a kind of a video game reference from uh XCOM, which is one of our favorite video games has a there's an Overwatch component to that game. So, yeah, it is a little ominous. I agree, the Watcher. And you got an eye for your logo, I see. Yes, that's right. Yep. So it can mean many things. We can be watching you. You could be watching us. We could be watching TV. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cool. Well, so check out The Watcher. Yeah. I don't have any good lawyering recommendations, unfortunately, but I did just see the Everest. Or Sorry, just Everest. And um, have you seen that? No, no. Huh. It's about the 1996 disaster. Is that the same season that Krakauer wrote yes. Into Thin Air about? Oh, okay, great. Exactly, Into Thin Air, which I ended up buying that book right afterward because it was such a good movie. I was like, oh, I want to kind of get the full story, you know, because you could have to cut out so much. The book was fantastic. Yeah, so I've, I'm working through that right now. But yeah, great movie if you're you're interested in documentary stuff of crazy stuff that can happen. I'll have to check that out. I mean, I do love people dying on Everest. That's like my favorite thing is just people because it's, I mean, especially be quoted for saying that. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't care. Especially when it's like fat tourists that are, you know, paying $50,000 to have Sherpas basically do all the work and and haul their fat asses up the mountain so that they can have this achievement of climbing the the mountain you know and then to when to have things go wrong up there and and have them um humbled yeah that's kind of what that was my initial reaction at first like what these these are basically rich people who are paying to have help you know but what has become clear to me is that these people a lot of these people are actually pretty I mean, they're definitely not the kind of climbers that are running the show, but they're way more of a climber than your average citizen. So I think it is, at least the the impression I left with after reading or watching the movie and what I've gotten through through the book so far is, yeah, this is not something to mess around with in any way, shape or form, you know, like even. Yeah, no, no joke. So even if you're wealthy, you're, 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 uh, you have experience and even then it's a, it's a big challenge and a lot of people don't even get up very high, you know, not, not, not even up to like wherever they're going. So no, they're puking their guts out at like the first base camp. 
Yeah, like the the base base camp, and they're they they're there for a month to acclimate, and they like never get acclimated because there's just yeah. not enough oxygen in the air. Yeah, uh, and because they're not fit enough. And yeah. Anyway, that that I agree. That sounds great. I would like to watch that. Cool. Well, our first question today is from Nabil, I believe. It's so I think it might be Nabil, kind of not Nab Nabil Nabil Nabil. Nabil? I don't know. He provided the pronounce the the thing. It's like phonetic. Do you see it down in the signature? Yeah, yeah. Nabil. Yeah. Nabil. Well, if we if we're fucking it up, I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, anyways, this is, this is a note from John, and John says, <laughs> "Okay, so he's he's he says he's a big fan of the podcast, which is great. Thank you very much, as always." He just took the February LSAT, and he's feeling very unsure about it because he said that his timing was way off on at least one section. He says that he usually finishes the section, but this time he could only answer 19 questions and guess on the rest. And then he says something interesting here. He says, this is partly because I expected the proctor to call that we had a 15, that we had 15 minutes left, but he never did. Instead, I panicked when he said we only have five minutes left. I'm wondering where in the world... He got the idea that they would give him a 15-minute warning. Yeah, that jumped out at me. Um, I I don't know. The LSAT gives you a five-minute warning, not a 15-minute warning. But there's somehow, a 15-minute break. There's right? a 15-minute break between section three and section four. But a 15-minute warning? There is no 15-minute warning. Yeah. And so this to me was just a sign of inadequate preparation slash bad advice from somewhere, you know, yeah. maybe read in a book somewhere that there was a 15 minute break or 15 minute warning. Hmm. Maybe took a, you know, how some schools have those like chintzy LSAT programs that are taught by some some old dude. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry if you're an old dude that teaches an LSAT class on campus, but those programs tend to be pretty weak. And yeah. uh, so I don't know. There's just so much bad advice out there. I, I hate to say, and uh, it sounds like Nabil got got some bad advice from somewhere because there is no 15 minute warning. And yeah, you can definitely panic if you if you think you're supposed to get a 15 minute warning and you only get a five minute warning. Oops. So, yeah, that's weird. You know, I don't know where he got that advice. That's too bad. Yep. So then he goes on, he says, I couldn't finish the game section. I felt like I got 13 to 15 points, where I usually get 18 to 20 points. Lastly, RC is up in the air because I took it right after that bad LR section and was rattled. But I might have done good. I'm not sure. So his main question is, if he wants to retake in June... What should I do for the, the these four months? Uh, it seems like a really long time. And I've already retaken my old practice tests a few times. My my prep material is 98% exhausted. Any thoughts, reactions? I, I don't think that Nabil has done all 80 practice tests multiple times. Yeah. My guess is that maybe he's got one book or two books. So I, that's my first advice. Why don't you find more of those tests and do do more of them? For sure. Yeah. Yeah, like maybe he's done 
the recent book of tests 62 to 71 or 52 to 61, even if he's done both of those, there are the missing tests, so to speak, between 39 and 51, and then tests all before that. There are a lot of tests out there. Yeah, it would be very surprising if he's gone through all of those a few times. Yeah. Uh, do more timed 35-minute sections this time around and do them with a five-minute warning. Do it with a five-minute, you know, not not a 15-minute warning, but a five-minute warning. Mm-hmm. Get maybe some better advice if you... I don't know. I feel like maybe Nabil's been trying to do this kind of by himself mm-hmm. and without the benefit of really like a professional or, or somebody that knows their shit. Yeah. What else? Well, um, it sounds like, so he says he usually gets 18 to 20 points in the games. So even though he's seen, let's say he's seen, there's no way he's, I don't know. I just don't feel like he's seen all the games out there. But even if he has, he needs to go back and and drill some, either get faster at the easier ones so he has more time for the harder ones, or really figure out why he's not nailing a lot of those games, um, particularly ones that he's struggled with in the past. I think sometimes people struggle with a game and it takes them 15 minutes or 12 minutes and then they do it again, if at all, and they do it in like 10 minutes and like, now I get it, I'm done. But that might be way too slow depending on the game. It's not like they've really gotten it. Yeah, I might just emphasize quality over quantity. Yeah. I think a lot of students just hammer practice test after practice test after practice test and and don't really review or don't really learn anything from all of that practice. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, it is true, four months is a long time. I like to tell people that if they can't prep in four months, they just might not be able to prep at all. You know, four months should be enough time to figure this out if you're going to be diligent and work at it every day. Yeah. Especially if you've already taken the test. If you're getting good feedback, I think, right. too, on the, on the questions you're getting wrong and not necessarily from a high-paid tutor right. but from some source that you're you know getting you're understanding exactly why things are wrong yeah yeah and so i i guess i would just say you know it's kind of like the same general advice we give everybody which is 35 minute sections and then dig in really dig in deep reviewing your mistakes especially the mistakes in the first 10 especially the mistakes in the first 15 you know deep mastery is what we're talking about Get yourself a study partner, a tutor, I guess, if you can afford one. But you've got to really understand why you're making the mistakes, not just do test after test after test and hope that you're going to do better. Yeah, I and I want to clarify, I think we've said this many times before, but it's still a question I get all the time. People ask me, how many timed sections should I do a day or how many timed sections should I do a week or timed tests should I do a week? Yeah. And my reaction always is always the same. It's like, well, you do a timed section on Tuesday or whatever, and then you start reviewing it. And if you've reviewed it to the point where you understand everything really well and you still have time on Tuesday and you want to do some more stuff, then do another section. But If you do it on Tuesday and you start reviewing it and you still have stuff to review on Wednesday, then review it on Wednesday. Don't take another section until you're like, I'm good with the one I took. Yeah, I can't really can't stress that enough. And that's actually one of the reasons why I prefer people doing individual sections instead of doing full tests. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I would rather have you do one section and review it and actually learn something than do four sections and then kind of half-ass review it and move on to a new test. Yeah, because it's so overwhelming. You have yeah. so much stuff to look at. It's easy to sort of throw your hands up and just say, well, I'm just going to move on. Right. Everybody's different, but for four months, if you just did one section a day and thoroughly reviewed it, that would be what? That'd be like 30 tests. Mm-hmm. And if you can't figure out the LSAT with 30 tests, I mean, <laughs> you're just you're fighting an uphill battle, I guess. Yeah. I'm not telling you to give up on your dreams or whatever, but consider giving up on your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> it all started here. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah, you. No, I agree, and, and I, I think that um, I you'd really, I'd really want to figure out like what kind of what he had been doing. But if you've done it right and you're getting good feedback on the things you're getting wrong, then yeah, this is this is this is a tough. It may, it may be better to go down a different route. And a lot of times people, too, they take issue with the LSAT and how it's different from legal practice, and I'm sure there are some differences. But the core of like analysis, I think, is pretty key. And if this is something that's really painful to you, then maybe you're not going to like law school. Yeah. Get get some better help, though. I mean, before you give up, you know, definitely get yourself some better help. That can be a study partner. That can be high-quality books, high-quality videos. Um, you know, check out some of the videos on my site. There's 15 hours worth of free video at foxlsat.com. You can see what it, what, what it looks like when I'm teaching LSAT in the classroom. Check those out. It's all there for free, just waiting for you to do the work. So do the work, you know? Um, yeah. But the point is that you need to learn from your mistakes. I think that's the one, it's so obvious, but I think that's the one thing that people don't do is they just, they put in the hours, but they don't actually learn anything. Yeah. Well, great. Did you have anything else you wanted to say? Yeah. For interview? yeah. Cool. Thanks for writing. I guess. Yeah. So the, the next uh, advice slash question comes from Kaylee, who's uh, written us before. Kaylee, it's great to hear from you as always. Uh, so what's she telling us here for the admissions or the, the LSAC forms? Uh, here, let me just read it. Why not? She, mm-hmm. she crafted it. Um, so suggestion for students. I was surprised to learn how useful talking to admissions officers at an LSAC forum can be, as I'm nearly certain that accidentally chatting up the UVA assistant dean of admissions at his table played a significant role in me being admitted. If you have students debating whether to go to an LSAC forum, tell them definitely go with thoughtful questions and talk to admissions officers. If the admission officer offers their card, always send them a thank you note. I'm almost certain it made a difference for me as someone with a weird application, low GPA, higher LSAT, and I was admitted in an enthusiastic email reply within a few hours of sending a thank you email back in December. So Kaylee went to one of these um, forums, met uh, someone who had some decision-making ability at UVA, and made an impression. And ended up being admitted, kind of instantly admitted, as soon as she applied, um, yeah, because she had made a nice impression. She says, as a follow-up to that, she says that they considered the conversation that she had at the LSAC forum, She actually, they actually considered that as her interview. Mm. Um, they, they told her that, I guess? Yeah, they told her that in an email. Wow. Yeah, she says, maybe those the schools that do interviews value applicants' ability to have an in-person conversation or something. I really have no idea, and this is all anecdotal, 
but if there's nothing to lose and a potential for it to help, it's worth trying. You know, this is good advice. And one, she, one thing she does say here, she says to tell, uh, to go with thoughtful questions. Yeah. And I think some people wonder what a thoughtful question would be. And sometimes they want actual questions. And I think a thoughtful question, usually by definition, is something that's not obvious. And so if it's an obvious question that you could ask, then all of a sudden it's no longer thoughtful, like you should have figured it out or it should have been something that you could have found on your own. And so I would suggest that there is no necessarily one thoughtful question. It kind of depends on what you're interested in. But to find those or to come up with those thoughtful questions, you have to put in your research. The more you know, the more you know what you don't know. And that's what leads to the questions. So you right. read on the website, you try to talk to people who have gone to the school. I mean, uh, if you know anyone, even an uncle of a friend, just anything you can do to learn about the school is going to open up, is going to help you learn more about it. And that's going to be what raises questions that are thoughtful and something that the school could provide insight to that you're not just going to find searching the internet. Yeah, if if I can answer the question in two minutes worth of Google searching, then it's not a thoughtful question. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, it's the the kind of it's in the name the definition. It's in the name of the thought, thoughtful question means fucking think about it, mm-hmm. think think about it a little bit, and then you'll have a thoughtful question. So and to to think about it, you have to have knowledge. Like you have to like go out and learn some stuff, and that's what makes you aware of what you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so example of a not thoughtful question would be like, so UVA, uh, where are you located? You know, like, or, or like, uh, so what, what sort of uh, specialties do you have? Oh yeah. That's a classic. What do you like to specialize in? What, you know, you can find this stuff on their website for sure. It's what yeah. they highlight. I mean, that's just, you're just absolutely wasting people's time. And, and, you know, I mean, the people at the forums, to be fair, they are doing a lot of just standing around. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to try to get you to, you know, they're, they're still going to be nice to you and they're going to try to get you to apply and they're going to give you some free candy and, and whatnot. But you're certainly not making a, an impression on them. Mm-hmm. If anything, mm-hmm. you're making a bad impression on them by being unprofessional. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I would say, what do you think about dress? I've, I've heard people say you should probably go, if not like full on business attire, you should probably be business casual. Yeah, I would say smart casual or whatever it's called. I don't know the right name, but sort of basically you're looking sharp, but not in a business suit or whatever. It's nothing wrong with a suit. Nothing wrong with it, I, but I think there's some sort of value to in just looking like nice, but not yeah. necessarily pretending like, I don't know. To me, a, a suit can kind of end like a desperate signal too. Like I'm trying my hardest to look good superficially, but I'm not necessarily, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, maybe I could be overreading that, but I, I think people who dress up nice, but don't look like they're trying too hard. 
Yeah. Send a good impression. Yeah. Yeah. If you're like me and you're the type of person who just dreads the idea of ever putting on a suit, you, I would almost say you might want to reconsider whether law school is the right thing for you. That's true. Lawyers like to wear suits, man. If you don't like to wear suits, I don't know if, I don't know if you really want to be a lawyer. Yeah. What else, what other advice do we have about that? I don't know. I think this is, I mean, this is pretty good, right? Like, yeah. Go to these forums and be prepared. Yeah. You can go and accumulate, you can go accumulate fee waivers as well. Uh, you can go and accumulate free candy and shit, but if you want to, you know, if you want to be like a professional, you can go and actually make an impression on people who might be making the decision about whether you're going to be admitted to their school or not. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, yeah, if you, if you can put some thought into it, put some work into it and it could be a, a nice opportunity for you to make an impression on somebody. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, Kaylee also gave some, uh, she, I guess she went and dug through the archives, which is awesome. She's a, well, she's working on her own, uh, wait list situation. So she went through the old thinking LSAT episodes in her iTunes and saw that there's at least a few that included information for people on wait lists and generally helpful for, uh, advice for people who are in this situation. So mm-hmm. if that's you, if you've already got um, some offers or if you've already got some wait list situation going on and you want some advice, uh, it looks like there were episodes uh, five. That's a long time ago. Episode five, 18, 24 and 29 that have wait list advice in them. So five, 18, 24, 29, if you're looking for wait list advice. And Kaylee, I'm sorry, Kaylee was asking me if I happen to know whether there are other episodes related to that, and I absolutely do not know. So, <laughs> sorry, Kaylee, you know better than I do about what's in the archives. Yeah, so 5, 18, 24, and 29 for waitlist stuff. For more waitlist stuff, yeah. yeah. Oh, and she did give a link to the 2016 dates, so we will post that link uh, to thinkinglsat.com when we post the show. Okay. Yeah. All right. So this next question is from Ben, not from me, another Ben out in the world, shockingly. And uh, he actually, oh yeah, he posted this on our, our LSAT, uh, our thinkinglsat.com forward slash blog. But if you go to thinkinglsat.com, that'll take you to the blog and you can post questions there. And that's what Ben did with this one. Yep. And we do get those and we do respond to those. So that's fine. Yeah. Okay, so he's currently a double major in electrical and computer engineering, awesome. and he wants to go into patent law, which is not surprising. Um, so first of all, he wants to ask about his GPA. He says, I'm not going to pretend to be a shining student. My GPA will probably be, probably be a low three range when I graduate. So he's thinking like 3.1 to 3.3. Some people have told me that this will hurt me a lot. Others have told me because I will have a STM degree, in the, or degrees, I guess, really. In other words, a, sort of an engineering math-oriented uh, degree, that the lower GPA won't impact me as much. Any thoughts? Do I realistically have a shot at getting into a top school with a good LSAT score? I would say yes. Um, even though his GPA is lower, if, especially if he can get it closer to the three, three, 
if he has a high LSAT score, I definitely think they're going to take into consideration that he is a double major and he's majoring in electrical and computer engineering, which is uh, don't mess around. They don't; Those are not soft degrees by any means. So depending on what else he adds to his application, I'm very confident he could get into a top school. It really just depends on the LSAT score, wouldn't you say? I would say absolutely. A uh, couple things. One is, you know, this is one reason why schools tend to take LSAT into uh, heavier consideration than GPA is because a 3.3 in electrical and computer engineering, it's really hard to compare that to a 3.3 in, say, political science. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not trying to diss on political science, but uh, engineering shit's really hard. You know, Mm -hmm. that's like hard science classes, hard math classes. And they curve those classes very severely. There are there are times where, you know, you'll get 32% on your quiz and that'll be the highest grade in the class. And, you know, like that it's a like it's a major achievement to get an A minus. Yeah. And that's just not the case in most, um, you know, political science programs. They give away some A's in those programs and they don't, they just don't give out very many in engineering degrees or science degrees at all. So I think schools know that. And when they see you coming in with a 3.3, but you were a computer science major or an engineering major of any kind, I think they're going to, they are going to take that into account. Yeah. Side note here, by the way, if you're can, if you're at the beginning, uh, I mean, I imagine we're not looking at a lot of people who are at the beginning of their college career. Although there are some people I do know who start looking into the LSAT pretty soon. Yeah. And parents. I mean, I I think there are parents actually who listen to the show too. Oh, really? Okay. Well, for those of you who are considering law school and therefore considering a quote pre-law major or something along the line, those lines, I mean, I'm just speaking for myself here, but I would consider that a fake degree. I don't, there's, this would be something like, and maybe this will offend people, but criminal justice or I, I there are some pre-law degrees that are actually called pre-law or something like that but there's these category of degrees that are specifically aimed for students who are planning to go to law school okay. and they just seem to have no rigor whatsoever and I don't think they're given as much respect um, which is why I think I feel sort of like okay I mean whatever that's great if that's what you're interested in but I don't it doesn't show sort of the same rigor as a lot of these other more traditional degrees. Um, okay, yeah. This might be the first time that you've said something slightly more extreme than what I would be willing to say. Okay. I, I just, I think people should just do what they're passionate about. And so if people are doing like, well, I'm going to do criminal justice because I think it'll look good on a law school application, then I think, yeah, that's totally bogus. But mm-hmm. if you're studying, you know, if you're studying something because you're passionate about it and you're therefore going to do well in it, I think that's going to be fine. You can you can absolutely major in anything and still go to law school. Yeah. Right? I mm-hmm. think the most important thing is whatever you pick, you need to love it. Mm-hmm. So if that's engineering, great. It's going to be hard. Your GPA is probably going to be a little bit lower. But if you love it, you're going to do well relative to your company competition, you're going to learn a lot and you're going to be in better shape. If it's political science, then that's great too. But you know, you have to love it. It has to not be like, well, I'm doing this because political science looks good on my law school application. Yeah. 
I guess, um, I mean, I think my, my animus is more toward specifically, quote, like a pre-law degree that's yeah. called that because it feels like you're majoring in nothing. Well, that's right. Yes. I, I think I, th- I think we're saying the same thing then, yeah. which is because there, if there's nothing there to love, then you can't you can't love it. Right. What what is that? What is a yeah. pre-law degree? I didn't even know that that was a thing. Do people really have a bachelor's in pre-law? Yeah, and they, they, the 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 degree seems to be hobbled together. I'm sure it could be different at different schools, and that's always the case. But like, they'll have you take a few classes from political science, a few classes from something else, and it's just sort of like you finish. And even when you're applying to law school, I think there's this kind of people are scratching their heads, saying, "What what exactly are you like?" What did you get out of school? Did you just go take a bunch of random classes or are you now like somewhat familiar with econ or, you know, you can. How does a 17 or 18 year old know that they're going to go to law school for one thing? I don't know. What if you change your mind? Yeah. And you you have now a a pre-law bachelor's, but you're not actually going to go be a lawyer. Yeah. Hmm. But I overall, and this is probably just my bias towards math intensive degrees but i would i don't know i feel like people should aim for a degree that's tough and some degrees are definitely a lot softer than others and i'm not too sure what their point is but i think it's a no-brainer man i'm with you on that i'm with you on that ten thousand percent that if you have the chops to do anything mathy or sciencey at all you should do it I yeah. regret not doing more rigorous science and math in my undergraduate. You know, I, I was I was so lazy. I was like 18, 19, and I was like, ah, those things sound hard. I'm going to do business things, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it was like, yep, it was easy. You could pass all the classes without even trying. I had classes where they had multiple choice. <laughs> they had multiple choice exams mm-hmm. and final exams. I, would, I looked for classes where it was the the grading was 100% multiple choice tests and then i would do no reading and never go to class at all and just show up and pass the tests yeah yeah and, you know not do well on them but like i was able to get c's just on my multiple choice ability yeah cuz you didn't have to sit down and like write something that would right no that would be work i never yeah. read i never studied at all i didn't even have outlines or notes or anything i would literally go to zero classes and then go like pass the sociology final exam and that's what, you know, because I was an idiot. And that's just, which, I mean, sorry, but there are a lot of eight, you know, 19, 20, 21 year old idiots out there. And that was such a waste of time and such a waste of money. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. I, I, I think our listeners are probably not doing that. But I really wish I would have applied my math brain more. And I wish I would have taken, yeah, I wish I would have taken harder classes. Yeah. Well, well, cool. So I think he has a good chance. It's uh, it'd be interesting to see what he gets on the LSAT. It's going to well, matter a lot. That was point. the second thing I wanted to say about his case is that I read a few years ago that computer science is actually the the degree that correlates with the highest LSAT scores. Wait, hold on. I think so. I've seen that. As well, and I thought it was either way. We're all we're basically on the same page, but I, I had in my mind that it was physics 
math and econ that were up near the top. But those are all pretty can be math intensive. I had computer science as number one on the list. Number one. Hmm. Yeah. For some reason, I had physics in my mind as number oh, okay. one. But well, either way, what's consistent <laughs> about all of these is you're doing some serious thinking. Yeah. You, yeah. I mean, it's it's logic and it's, you know, the, the, the LSAT is an extremely logical test. Mm-hmm. Lawyers might have a reputation for being big bullshitters, but the LSAT is not bullshit. The LSAT is like there's a right answer and you can figure that shit out, yeah. especially on the logic games. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so engineers, science, physics, people tend to do better on the LSAT. Mm-hmm. So it, it's like he's his brain has actually been being trained to do well on the LSAT because he is studying the science, math, technology, computer science stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So he should do well on the LSAT. I would expect him to do well on the LSAT. I think the schools are going to expect him to do well on the LSAT. So he's going to be, you know, he'll be a splitter, right? It'll be his application versus somebody with a 3.8 in political science. Mm-hmm. I think that the admissions people would be willing to listen to his case of like, hey, 3.3 in com- computer engineering. I mean, that's pretty awesome. But they're going to then require the LSAT score to sort of drive home the point that, hey, this is a more talented um, applicant. Yeah. Right. So it's again, it comes back to like, well, (laughs) the LSAT score doesn't lie. And so you just have to get the LSAT score. Cool. No, that's a very good point. His his next uh, question has to do with the job market. And uh, he says, I've heard time and time again that the job market for law degrees is awful right now this is something i'd really like to do something i have been thinking about for four years now i finally this year made the decision to go for it um and anyway so he says he's curious if we have as negative an outlook on the job market as others have as others that he's talked to and my reaction is kind of Twofold. One is, yeah, I think the job market probably sucks for attorneys. I think there's a lot of big things changing. A lot of legal work is going overseas, which is decreasing the demand for legal, traditional legal work here, which just makes sense. People are going to where it's cheaper if the work is just as good. I don't know if it is just as good, but I don't really care. I think there's changes uh, that are happening. But he says here it's something that he'd really like to do, and it's something that he's been thinking about for four years now. I would say the job market doesn't matter. If you're really passionate about this and you want to do it, you're going to do well. And there will always be work for top quality lawyers. And they are not only, there's not only going to be work, but they're going to be paid substantially more than the rest of the crop because of the whole 90 10 or 80 20 rule, however you want to think about it. And so if this is something you're really passionate about, he seems like a, a, a person who takes on challenges like, electrical engineering and computer science or whatever he's going to do well and i would go for it and he's going to find a job market that suits him well yeah i can't say it better than that Ben. i mean if you're passionate about it if you know what lawyers do and you really want to do that work then you should go and if not then don't you know listen to my interview with nikki black again a couple episodes back She's somebody who did her due diligence. She she knew lawyers. She knew what lawyers do. And she knew she could do that work. And she knew she wanted to do that work. There will always be jobs for someone like that. 
Yeah. If you're doing this just because, oh, I don't know, it's either business school or law school, which one should I do? Because I'm working on a, I just want to have a career, you know, then I would say don't go because you don't have any idea what lawyers do. Yeah. And I mean, that's exactly what you're just saying right there is exactly the problem that led to the probably the lawyer bubble. Yeah. The excess of lawyers that when the crash happened uh, had to be expelled and the ones that were spewed out of the system were the ones who were there because it was a career choice to make money. They thought, oh, I don't know what I want to do with my life, but I know lawyers make money, so I'm going to go to law school. And now their baristas writing, you know, poor me pieces in the New York Times. Yeah, and people with JDs who are applying for a job as a receptionist at a legal firm, at a law firm. That's not a joke. I mean, that's like a that's a real thing that has been happening. Is people yeah. with JDs, they've spent three years of their life, hundred and fifty, hundred and seventy five thousand dollars you know, past the bar and everything. And now they're going to work as a receptionist, which might not even require a college degree uh, at a law firm just because they, they can't get their foot in the door. You know, that's not going to happen to people who are smart and passionate and really know what they're getting themselves into. But that's yeah. absolutely going to happen to people who are just like, oh, the average salary for lawyers is... $80,000 a year right out of law school. Great. I'm doing that. It's like, yeah. mm, you are never going to get a job because you don't know what lawyers do. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Anything else to add here to Ben's question, comment? Um, no, I hope he goes. I mean, it, se it seems like he's done his due diligence and it seems like he's going to be a talented, you know, applicant. Um, the fact that he's going to finish up an engineering degree and then, but he's been thinking about law school for four years. Yeah. I think he should say, fuck it. The job market's always going to be good for me. Mm -hmm. It is. Ben, yeah. the job market is always going to be good for you. So, you know, if that's yeah. what you want to do, do it. But if you're thinking about like, well, there's this versus this other path versus this other path. And I don't know, I'm just trying to assess my job mark, my job possibilities. If that's your analysis, then I don't think law school is the thing for you. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I guess should we go? Seth, Seth, my youngest just came in. Um, we're doing a podcast, so we're recording some stuff. Do you have any questions? Yes. What? Uh, I think uh, when I watch Archonauts, then he did this. Something. Uh. You want to go watch Archonauts? Okay. Uh, hold on, Nathan. Let me <laughs> let me take this guy back to whatever they're doing. And now, here's my interview with attorney Kevin Hazlett. I guess you're used to doing radio stuff, huh? <laughs> kind of by default. I got into it uh, kind of accidentally through one of my clients, but it, it has progressed a little bit, yes. So I have to start off with that because if you do any Googling of you at all, 
you immediately find uh, Bubba the Love Sponge. And I first wondered if that was a real thing. <laughs> uh, let me back up for a second. My part of my legal career began with representing on-air personalities. And it started off with uh, radio personalities, TV personalities. And my brother-in-law is in the voiceover business. And he first kind of gave my name to to uh, a guy in radio. I got his case dismissed. I do criminal work. And that led one to the other, led to the other. And then Bubba the Love Sponge, who was, he's kind of like a Howard Stern. I mean, he was on the Howard Stern network. Okay. So he's similar to that. I guess I would call him a shock jock. We're not, I would. He is a shock jock. Um, and he is heard, I think, in 14 markets. And he is based out of Tampa. And my claim to fame with him was that he was accused, and I think it was 2000, of doing an on-air radio stunt where he had folks actually um, kill a feral hog like a pig roast on air and then they roasted it and he gotten sideways with the prosecuting attorney for hillsborough county which is tampa he got arrested uh at that point clear channel which is out of san antonio got me involved and i represented him or, or, or him and his cohort in a criminal case which was the first case to be heard gavel to gavel live on the internet and he was acquitted. And the day afterwards, uh, I burst into his radio uh, station while he was live on the air to talk about the trial. And uh, uh, I became a regular on-air personality, and that led to other on-air stuff and led to my own show. And the rest, as they say, is history. Amazing. So you are a partner at uh, Carlson. Is it Meisner or Mesner? Carlson, Meisner, Hart, and Hazlett. Carlson, Meisner, Hart, and Hazlett. Yeah. And uh, how long have you been at that firm? Uh, since 1992, so. Okay, and you've been doing radio stuff since when, around the same time? Uh, really since, I mean, kind of on and off. I mean, you know, kind of being like a talking head for like okay. for certain like TV stations. And um, I do, I have a CBS uh, affiliate out of Minnesota, doing that for a couple of years, kind of random stuff, depending on, you know, like during the uh, Trayvon Martin case, I was on BBC One. Uh, so just kind of giving commentary on legal cases as, as they kind of happen as someone passes along my name. That's fantastic. Well, your reach is going to be a lot larger than ours, I think. We're, we're a very small little niche um, LSAT podcast at this point. But uh, how... Growing, but growing, Nathan. It is growing, yeah. And, and we love it and we intend to keep doing it. So um, this will live on for all time. Um, how do people hear more of you once they get super excited about... Uh, well, if they get super excited, which I don't know if they will, they can go to BubbaArmyRadio.com, and I do a show every Tuesday night, 6 to 8, called Kevin's Law, which is kind of like a Q&A. People call from around really the country and the world with legal questions. I, it's just a small show. I, I guess about 50,000 people listen weekly. Awesome. And uh, But, you know, but people call, Nathan, they call from... California, they call from Oregon, or they call from New York, or I've had people call from other countries, kind of with legal questions. And I think a lot of people are afraid to, you know, call a doctor or call a lawyer because they don't want to pay the price. So it gives an opportunity for people to call and get some free advice. 
Yeah. Um, you are also all over YouTube. I watched a few of your videos. I first encountered you, I believe, on Twitter. And on Twitter, you're at Attorney to the Stars, A-T-T-Y-T, uh, A-T-T-Y, the number two, the stars on Twitter. And which, I guess... Which was a tongue-in-cheek. That was... That was sort of a joke, which kind of stuck. Yeah, and and the rest is is, is history, as they say. Yeah, you do have some uh, not not only radio uh, personality clients, but you have done a, a couple of high defense, uh, high profile uh, celebrity defense cases. Um, NBA, NFL. Um, I kind of because we've got spring, you know, training here. I represent a lot of the Yankees. Got a, a relationship with that organization, the Phillies. So. If a, if a Yankee or a Philly gets in trouble in Florida, usually I'm involved. Um, yeah. And then pretty much, I would say probably eight to 15 pro wrestlers. So if there's a pro wrestler that gets in trouble, usually I get involved. Um, probably, you know, Randy Macho Man Savage uh, and probably wow. the most. Uh, and then Hulk Hogan, probably the biggest case in the wrestling world is I represented Hulk Hogan's son. Uh, when he was involved in an auto accident that uh, put uh, his friend in a coma. And that was kind of international news. Yeah, I read about that. That's sad. Did the friend survive that? He is still alive. He's still in a coma. No, he's, not, he's not in a good way. But but uh, a very interesting case that got a lot of attention. Okay. Um, you reached out to me because you were slightly tired of me continually trying to talk people out of the legal profession. Well, I, I reached out to you because people in the gym, because I had you on, you know, when I'm working out and I was yelling at my phone and, <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and rather than continue to yell at my phones, Nathan, stop bashing lawyer, practicing lawyers. I sent you a tweet as I walked out as sort of an aside. And uh, that's how it started. I'm very happy you did. It's, it's really nice to talk to you. And uh, I think you're right that getting a balanced perspective on the show does make a lot of sense. There are happy attorneys out there in the world uh like my buddy nikki who people have heard on the show before yes very good yeah with nikki. thank you um maybe just give people a little bit of a um walk them through how you decide how, how did you decide to go to law school in the first place well you know you, you know your your podcast it had me kind of reflect on that and you know it's one of those things that i guess like some people just because i've kind of always you know, been in debate in high school or kind of was the guy that I had no problem addressing people, that it kind of was like a natural progression. And then probably for all the wrong reasons, which were, you know, my, I had three college room, or two college roommates and me included, and they were going to law school. You know, it seemed like the thing to do in 1984. So it seemed like the natural progression. I'd always been told, you'd be a great lawyer. But, you know, I didn't probably go with the with the with the right mindset, which is I didn't do my due diligence and say, what am I going to do when I get out? Um, I didn't have a clear idea what a lawyer did, which I kind of wish I would go back in time and, and had known that. But my thought was, hey, I like trying. I think I like trying cases and I think I want to be a trial lawyer because that looks pretty interesting. And that was the sole basis. So then on my research was uh, I want to go where the best trial lawyers are, you know, who has the best mock trial program. And that became my focus at the time. And uh, that's, you know, I, I was involved in mock trials and, and law school, kind of really involved. And that was kind of my thing. And that was what I kind of perceived I would do. But I didn't, 
I didn't have a clear-cut idea. I didn't have lawyers in my family. I didn't have someone that I could get counsel from and say, hey, what are you going to do when you get out? I kind of blindly went into it uh, with the idea that I'm going to be like a lawyer on TV, which is kind of not the good way to do it. Um, but that was the way I kind of entered it, and it seemed to go naturally. I didn't. I went straight from undergrad right into law school. Um, I didn't take any time off. I went straight through, and and I, I started college when I was 17, so I got to law school a little early. By the time I was 24, I was trying my first case. Wow. Case. So, you know, within the first year I was a prosecutor, I tried uh, over 100 jury trials, and I kind of kept going. Was that your first job then? Right, You went to Cumberland uh, School of Law in Birmingham. Yeah. And your first job was right away uh, as a prosecutor? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I played ten I went to a small school in South Carolina, Furman, which is a small liberal arts school. I went there to play tennis and uh kind of in the summers I would teach tennis and then same thing in law school. I was the antithesis of the diligent student. I taught tennis at country clubs in the summer and went back to law school. I wasn't really thinking about what I was gonna do and I got involved in mock trial and then that was why I sought that school out because that and Stetson were kind of the two juggernauts in mock trial competition as opposed to moot court. And um, and we competed against other schools. And I was at Vanderbilt and a guy from where I'm from, which is on the west coast of Florida, saw me there and said, hey, you know what? We You should come apply to the state attorney's office and be an assistant state attorney. And I was like, well, what is that? And uh, I came back on my spring break, applied, got the job, started off for at $17,000 in, in 1987. That was my yep. starting, that was my starting salary. Yep. That job now would be what 40 about, about $5,000? 45,000 exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot less than I think many applicants are expecting. You know, when I think people look at the average, they say, "Oh, the average lawyer makes $80,000 right out of law school. And I think what they're missing is that most lawyers make more like 40 or 50 and some lawyers make 130. And that's why the average is 80. Yeah. And it depends. And it's a trade-off too, Nathan, because, you know, I've got friends that, that went to big firms in Atlanta and, and New York and Chicago, and they, you know, they were working really hard, a lot of hours and they made big dollars out of law school uh, if you work for a governmental agency, whether it's the U.S. Attorney's Office or a district attorney's office or state attorney's office or public defender's office, you know, the salary is a lot less. Generally, you're not in that 80-hour-a-week grind. I mean, you work a lot, but it's not maybe 80 hours. You also have the ability to jump into the fray earlier as opposed to a lot of my friends that went to big firms they didn't get to sit at a deposition where they were asking questions for five to seven years Yeah. Ver versus, you know, I was maybe an instant gratification guy where I, my second day on the job, I was trying a case. Yeah. And, you know, now was it the right way? You know, I, at least, you know, I thought it was right at the time, but you know, obviously I made mis mistakes, but you know, I enjoyed that, but kind of what to reflect on what you've talked about in other podcasts is, you know, at the time that I started law school, too, it was different, and the cost of education was much more affordable. You know, I think law school, when I started, was was 4000 a year or 5000 a year. That was what mm. the tuition was, and I luckily got a scholarship, but so mine was even less than that. So 
that's completely different. Right now, folks that want to go into governmental work, for the most part, are saddled by these loans that prevent them from doing what they may have a heart to do because they can't afford to take that position. Yeah, uh, you're preaching to the choir here. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why I do so much trying to talk people out of it, because I feel like they just don't know they're not going to they're getting bad value for their money, essentially. Well, well you know, you, you have that discussion on your show and and I have that discussion with folks that come to me that say, you know, I'm thinking about going to law school. And what I do is I bring out a whiteboard and I do math. <laughs> I say, yeah. OK, right. I mean, that's what you do. And you say, OK. This is what the average lawyer makes. This is where you're saying you want to go. This is how much you say you're going to borrow. This is how much you have to pay back. This is what you're making now. This is what your net is. This is what your net will be after you pay back the loan. And a lot of times, to their surprise, they can even make 80 grand a year and take home less as a lawyer than they can right now making 30 or 40,000. And, and that shocks, I think, a lot of people. Yeah. And that's if they are able to actually get the job that they think they're going to get. Well, yeah. And that's just trying to take averages. And, and, and most folks, folks are going to get less than average. But you're absolutely right. So that's, that's why I think that the, the message you have for a lot of folks, which is a good one, which is do really, really well on your LSAT so you have an opportunity to leverage that to get low-cost, no-cost law school so you're not paying back this 30-year mortgage and trying to buy a house and trying to buy a car <laughs> and trying to raise a family, right? Yeah, right. How did you uh, get your scholarship to, to law school? You must have done well on the LSAT. Well, you know, I, I knew you were going to ask that question, and I was trying to go back. And, and I think we were on the old, I think, 40 or 50, or I can't remember what it was. You know, I think the equivalent would have been about a 160. Okay. Uh, I had decent grades, but... Mine was related to uh, my trial skill, <laughs> but uh, because I, you know, I did really well in the, in the trial competition and, and you know, in the intra-school competition, and then uh, got involved, and that was part of the uh, that that end grades uh, were part of the reason that they gave me a half ride. But you know, getting whatever two thousand dollars off a four thousand dollar is kind of pittance, but you know that'd be a big deal now if it's fifty percent off a. A scholarship right now, but that that you know the the tuition back then of law schools was not the thing that people were over you know overly concerned about like they are today. You know now, my gosh, I mean the the numbers are so big that you've got to really, in my opinion, shop hard and make a good educated decision. You got to be good with math, which most lawyers aren't good with math to figure out what's the best choice for your future, not for the three years but for the 30 that follow. Yeah, totally. Did they, I know law school used to be a lot more um, cutthroat. Well, it may not be the no. right word, but. No, you're right. It did. Well, while you were there, were they, was it back even in the days when they were like kicking people out of school? Oh, no, there's no question. In, in fact, I, I think that, and of course, I don't know enough about it to tell you, but anecdotally, this literally, I can recall this like it was yesterday. In, in, in my first year contracts class, and you know, it was like taken out of paper chase. I mean, it was, yeah. he actually took it, but he, you know, it was the flipping of the quarter up and down, and, and he comes around and he throws it on the table. You know, this guy was made everybody, everybody was in fear in his class to be called on. And he says, you know, 
look to your left, look to your right. One of you are not going to be here after the first semester. And, and at that point, they were in a really high attrition rate, and they accepted, I think, more people. A lot of law schools did, but the, but the folks that graduated were probably 60%. I think probably 30% of the folks uh, didn't make it by the end of the three years. And I don't think you have that same, you know better than I do, I don't think that's the, the way it is today, obviously, because they want your money. But then they, they brought a lot of folks in and they flushed a lot of people out. It's crazy because the tuitions have skyrocketed and they don't flunk anybody out anymore. Or it's it's hard to flunk out of law school. I mean, I would have flunked out of law school if it was at all possible to flunk out of law school. Um, yeah, I watch a lot of people flunk out, especially after the first semester and really the first year. And I didn't I, maybe only two kids didn't graduate. But I had people that were flunking out of my class third year, second term. You know, because they couldn't pass tax, you know, and it, it, they just they didn't make it. But that I think now I, I get you know better than I do. But anecdotally, I think that now you would hear that that would be an anomaly to have someone not make it because of grades unless they were just horrible. I, I would have had to not taken I would have had to have not taken my exams, I think. I think as long as I show up and write an exam, I believe I would not have failed out of school. Yeah, that 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 was different back then. I mean, you had a, and and I think that was the, that was sort of the the way that law school was wired. I mean, it was I think they kind of prided themselves, kind of like a, a boot camp, where they they were going to attrit a certain percentage of people, and they may let a lot of people in, but some people were going to get kicked out purely because of grades and that was part of their business model and it seemed to work because they had enough people coming in that they kind of factored that in and then i think they got smart and said hey wait we're a business let's keep all these people in and we can make more money by keeping them in for the full three years yeah well that's clearly what happened at some point they decided that they wanted to make the money instead of i don't know i mean it seems like they have kind of a duty to only turn out strong lawyers and and that i imagine that was what was happening you were totally prepared to practice law when you i mean not that you didn't not that you did everything perfectly but no, no, no. yeah you're right you're, you're right there, there was sort of a baptism by fire which is you know a, a really at least my experience was a very strong socratic method i mean it was kind of uh ruled by by terror and fear you never thought you were safe you know there, there was no you didn't think you thought at any moment you could fail out. So you were pretty much, I think, concerned your entire way through law school. And I can't speak how folks are today, but, um, but you know, you were afraid. And I think that fear, what is it? The, the scared rabbit runs the fast fastest. <laughs> so you're always, you know, trying to get on your game and you're studying, you're trying to get ahead and you're trying to juggle all those things. But, um, you know, I think the law schools changed from a very pure, you know, intellectual ivory tower, and they move more to a, hey, we can make money at this, partly because they found that the more they charged, the more students could borrow, the more they could borrow, the, the higher their tuitions went, the higher the tuitions, the more professors, the more professors, the bigger the library, and away we go, right? Yeah, definitely seems to be what happened. Tell me about, uh, I'm, I'm interested, I no real reason, but you do a lot, of, it sounds like, of DUI defense. I guess maybe because it's just such a common thing, I'm interested in what that's like. I'm interested in the National College of DUI Defense at Harvard and, and what that actually is. 
you know, don't be don't be impressed, uh, <laughs> please. You know, I, well, I, I, I say that somewhat tongue in cheek. You'd be impressed because the folks that are involved in it are really leading the, the country in, in that defense work. But step back for a second. I want you to think about this. If you take the average citizen in the U.S. and you say, what criminal offense is he or she most likely to be involved in in his or her life? You're going to think of the following offenses, uh, DUI, spouse battery, a drug possession, domestic violence, petty theft. You get away from those a little bit, and it drops off significantly. You know, when you say criminal offense, a lot of people think, oh, rapists and murderers, but that's such a small percentage. And you want, if you talk about the percentage of, you know, what people, the, the, the average person's going to get in trouble for, usually it's a license violation, something to do with a driver's license, something to do with alcohol or drugs. That's sure. It. Now, from a DUI standpoint, I now want you to think about, okay, if your clientele is going to be people that can afford your services, who are the most affluent people, and what are the affluent people going to get in trouble for? And I sat back in 1992 when I left the state attorney's office and started here when we had, I think, two criminal cases, because that's what I started with. And then now we have, at one given time, at any given time, I've got a lot of associates, but you know maybe 800 criminal offenses. Wow. Okay, but but maybe not 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 that many. Maybe maybe 500. But but you know through the year we'd go through a lot. I probably open and close an average of you know 300 to 400 cases a year. But most of those are people, you know, you know my strike zone is that cardiologist who gets a DUI. Uh, on the way home from a Christmas party, yep. Or, or the uh, grandson of a developer who has a drug problem, or that person who goes in uh, to have their wisdom teeth pulled and gets addicted to oxycodone. Mm. Uh, and that, so, those are the the most common things, and and those are the things that you see over and over again. Now, I started doing DUIs not because I'm like pro alcohol or anti alcohol because they're more prevalent. And then the more you got into it, the more you had to understand it, and the more you had to understand it, then that led to kind of reading about it and then writing about it and then lecturing about it and then getting invited to lecture about it and then seeking out the folks in the country that do the most of it and find out, well, how do they do it? How do they do it differently? And then going to seminars all around the country. And then they have, there's a number of different associations that I'm affiliated with uh, the one at Harvard is just they have it at Harvard, but it's a two-week intensive program that takes you soup to nuts through a DUI case, but it's not for the novice. It's more for the guy that's going to handle, you know, 20 to 100 a year. And then kind of because it's so specific because you've got to understand the science, the blood draw. You have to understand the intoxilizer. So you've got to understand you know, is it sort of an engineering component? You know, there's just so much to it. There's there's more criminal case law on DUIs than any other offense. Other, well, maybe murder because of the, you know, with the with the death penalty and the sure. offense. But there's a huge volume on stop cases. I mean, I live and breathe the Fourth Amendment every day, and you know, I I'm arguing Fourth Amendment cases. Con law to me is is a, a Monday through Friday issue. And so I you know I've got a 
I'm always looking at the latest Supreme Court cases that come out that deal with, you know, stop and frisk issues, you know, uh, driving issues, issues that deal with searches. I mean, all those are very relevant, and I end up arguing those, you know, from the Supreme Court down to, you know, Florida cases to District Court of Appeals cases down to Circuit Court cases, et cetera. So the, 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 the short answer is more affluent people get DUIs, ergo, it's a better business model. Sure. Yeah. How much time do you spend in the courtroom nowadays? Every day. Oh, wow. Every day. I mean, every, every day. I mean, some days today was relatively light, and that was I started off this morning um, at 830. Uh, I had 24 pretrials uh, and a trial. Uh, end up working the trial out. They end up reducing it, which happens a lot on the day of trial, uh, and then came back and, and, and met with two or three clients. But, you know, today was uh, maybe three hours, but some days it's seven hours, some days it's two hours. I mean, some Fridays I don't go, but usually Fridays I'm doing depositions. So uh, I would say uh, on an average, uh, four days a week. Wow. It sounds like you love what you do. Could you imagine doing anything else? Oh, sure. Of course. I could be a, a podcaster. Um, but uh, <laughs> I think but I think that I enjoy it because I get to take people and pull them back from the abyss. I, I represent really good people, usually at their lowest point. And I would tell you that 95% of my clients have life problems, not criminal problems. And I used to think, you know, when I was doing this, I mean, 15 years ago, if I got someone's case dismissed, that that was my goal. And then I kind of go, well, I found that if I could also, besides be like their criminal lawyer defending them or getting their case dismissed, if also I could be their counselor of law and kind of add that, well, let's solve your life problem here, because if we solve your life problem, then you're not going to have any more criminal problems. And their life problem might be something as simple as they can't figure out how to get their driver's license back. So they keep driving or they can't get off their addiction to opiates or they're in a bad relationship or they don't know how to be in a good relationship or, you know, all these things that you kind of have to step back and say, hey, you're not a bad person. You're not a criminal, but you keep making a, the same mistake with X, Y or Z. And a lot of times it's alcohol or drugs. So, you know, I, I find myself counseling people how to deal with those demons and, 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 and habits and traits. And it's weird because a lot of people think, well, if you get someone's case dismissed, that's the best business model because he'll tell 100 people and you'll have thousands of clients. And that's somewhat true. But if you can take someone who comes in who's just a train wreck and you can solve their criminal problem, maybe even not get it dismissed, but solve their criminal problem in, in, in a way of attacking their life problem and getting them back on track, those are the people that they're like cheerleaders for life, and it's actually pretty neat. Uh, and, and those are people also that, that you would run into, that I, that I do run into. I mean, the strange thing for me is I'll walk into a party or a restaurant or a social event, and I'll be in a room of maybe three or 400 people, and I may have represented 20 of the people there. <laughs> of course, they don't know who, you know, and no one knows it but me, and then it's always strange for my wife because I'll be somewhere in, We'll be in a restaurant, and all of a sudden, our our meal will be taken care of. Or some, oh, yeah. you know, and then who did that? And someone just come over and say thank you and walk out. 
Yeah, yeah, and then you just hope that they hadn't had four drinks while they were there at dinner. Well, you know, the I have an interesting effect on people when I walk into a bar or a restaurant, and it's a former client or current client, and, and they've got a drink in their hand, and they look at me, and all of a sudden, it's like their dad walked in. And they're like, they're like, they're like <laughs> instantly, they're going to tell me that it's their only one and they're opening home. <laughs> but I've got a real sobering effect on all these people, Nathan. Well, they probably remember your invoice. Oh, so I imagine do. that has a bit of a sobering effect. It, it does. But but you know what? I, probably more than anything, I th- and I might be wrong, I think they don't want to disappoint me. Yeah. You know, yeah, I can see that. They'll come back and they come back to me to represent them on a subsequent case and they come back and they're looking at their shoes and they're saying, listen, I, I didn't want to come back here because I didn't want to let you down. Yeah. You uh, mentioned Uber. I, I'm wondering if Uber is helping to cut down on some DUI. I think it, I think it is. And I think it's a good thing. I mean, I would just as soon be worked out of a job in that, because I think it'd be great for society. You know, I'm a big Uber fan. Well, I don't drink and drive, but I mean, I'm a big Uber fan and I'm a big Lyft fan, and I think that for millennials especially, I think a lot of them have been brought up in the last five years that, well, of course you wouldn't drink or drive. Why would you do that? You got Uber, and you can you can split it, and you can share it, and you can do, you know, it, it, it makes so much sense. I think the folks that are the, the slowest on the uptake are the folks, you know, over 50 that are still in that sort of 80s hangover uh, where they, they're like, we can party like it's 1982. And they're not really savvy with the apps, and they're the folks yeah. that repent it. But, but I mean, not that I, that I don't get my share of, you know, younger folks that have done, you know, twelve Jaeger bombs that that I'm representing because I get a lot of those. And it seems actually the younger people, Nathan, I get with some huge blows. I mean, they're two twos, two fives, two eights, three O's. I mean, they're really, really intoxicated. Um, so when, when I get them, they're usually pretty high, but they're more savvy. But, you know, what I don't know is is the DUIs are, that are being averted or diverted because of Uber because I don't see them. Now, I follow the stats, and, and if you look at some of the stats around the country, you've seen some DUI arrests going down. Now, I can't say it's related to Uber. Maybe you could, but a lot of those are related to law enforcement and how much uh, they're advo- you know, how much they're going to assign personnel, and some of them have cut back. But yeah. I, we've not seen a huge drop. Let's put it that way. Does Florida have DUI checkpoints? They do. They sure do. They're they're the worst use of use of uh, law enforcement time because they'll do a checkpoint. It's a great PSA, but most checkpoints will maybe yield one or two DUI arrests, and they'll have thirty cops out there for you know eight hours, and that's a horrible use of manpower. Yeah, creating a traffic jam as well, right? Ah, uh, just it's just I mean. There's a lot of cases cases out there that that that, that deal with it, and I, I think that it's not it's not the best use of manpower. That's for sure. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned that you have kids that are coming up on potentially law school age. Is that right? Yeah, I've got my oldest, who's a senior at Furman, where I went, and uh, I got a middle son who's at the Naval Academy, and I got you know, my youngest one's in high school. But my oldest one, who's who's uh, a senior, I think is is exploring the idea, and of course. My comment to him was uh, that he needs to have the best LSAT he can, and that once he he gets the, that score, that would be the time to have that conversation. And I think also, unlike myself, 
I think before he makes that decision to to go to law school, I'd like him to have a more of a hands-on idea of, okay, I'm going to go to law school, and then I'm going to do blank. And I think that if that's one thing I could impart upon your listeners is that in that is before you go to law school, maybe take some time to shadow. It doesn't have to be months, but a couple days, uh, a couple different lawyers in your town, find out what they do, find out what a corporate lawyer does, find out what a, a wills and trust lawyer does, find out what a large uh, attorney who works for a large company or an in-house counsel might do, find out what a, you know, what, what a prosecutor does, find out all those things. So you kind of like in med school when you do your rounds or they do their, their time where they spend in different, uh, you know, practices that they can have an idea of what they might be interested in because then they can devote some of their time in law school to that. Or they might do that going, boy, this is really boring. I don't ever want to do this. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe how many of my students have worked in a law firm, hated it, and then they're still going to law school anyway. And I'm, I'm like, what do you want to do? I don't know. <laughs> well, they, they may have worked in a law firm where the work that they're doing is not what they want to do. But if that's the case, I would encourage them to go work in a law firm where it's work they think they might want to do or, yes. or they're excited about doing. Or, you know, like Nikki story who had a really neat immigration story that she was moved by that. And she really enjoys helping people, you know, come work at visas, et cetera, because she's got a heart for that because of her sixth grade treatise or whatever it was yeah. manifesto. <laughs> uh, but, 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 you know, so, but I think that I would encourage people that, that listen to your podcast you know, besides getting the perfect LSAT, maybe think a little farther than that, than that and say, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer, and what kind of lawyer do I, I want to be? Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, well, I think that just about covers it. Is there anything else that you uh, would like to say to the audience? <laughs> I, would, I, I would say I, I'm, I'm the anti-Nathan, which, <laughs> which is there are lawyers out there that, that love what they do. I mean, there's lawyers that, that have a heart for it, that, that have been motivated because something that's happened in their life or because of something that they've got a passion for. Um, I will say like everybody, you know, there's not everything you like about your job, and I don't care what you do. No one loves every aspect of their job but there's some really neat rewards in law. And I think you can find that. Now, if the only reason that you're going to law school is because your perception that you're going to be rich, you need to think of something else because that, because that's not the reason to go to law school. Now there are plenty of lawyers who are rich, but I would tell you first, if you can find something you love, something that you just get up in the morning going, I want to, do this. I really love this, whether it's law or medicine or an entrepreneur or whatever it is. If it is law, then you'll do really well. And I don't care how many lawyers there are in the U.S., there's always room at the top. And if you work hard and like what you do, then you'll be very successful and the money will come. If you're doing it just because money and you just want to be a lawyer, and I don't know why you'd want to be a lawyer. I think in Florida, Nathan, we've got 100,000 lawyers. We've got more lawyers, I think, than any other state. Wow. I, I can't, you know, if I hit a nine iron in any direction, I'm going to hit two or three lawyers. I think that, that people just need to take stock. And the last thing I would say is do the math. 
do the math and figure out what law school is going to cost you and what it's going to cost you per month when you get out. And you need to focus on low cost, no cost for law school. Otherwise, when you get out, it's going to be that mortgage that keeps on giving. Yeah. Hey, since you mentioned it, you play golf as well as tennis? I, I play a little golf, more fun golf, you know, which is the, you know, the, the, the fun scrambles and that sort of thing. I see. You're nationally rated in singles and doubles, I believe. Is that still true? Uh, it was true when it was written, Nathan. Oh, okay. <laughs> but that was probably now eight years ago. Um, I see. I played tennis in college and, and, and not particularly well, well enough to play tennis in college. And I played a little bit afterwards and played some adult. I played under 40s and did well in a couple national tournaments. And then my middle son became a, a nationally ranked tennis player. And I basically followed him around the country while he played. Um, and that he ended up at the Naval Academy as a recruited tennis player. So now my youngest son is a travel basketball player, so I'm spending a lot of time in gyms. But at some point, I will get back to playing more. I used to play a lot. Not right now. <laughs> kids, <laughs> kids kind of take some of your time in a good way. Yeah, and you're in court the rest of the time, so it sounds like you're busy. Uh, one last question. Do you ever intend to retire? That's a great question, and, and the answer is that I actually circled this year, August 7th, 2021. And, and I did that just because I'm kind of goal-oriented anyway. And I wanted to to set a date that I could if I wanted to. Now, retiring may mean not doing what I'm doing. And I would love at some point not to go to court every day because it is stressful. But if I think if I stopped doing that, I'd probably I would do something else um, in its stead. And I don't know what that is, but I would never not work. Now, I may work for no money, you know, and something I like doing. And it may not do, you know, necessarily deal with law. The problem, though, is, is it it's like when you get to be proficient at something, you know, it's hard. What are you going to not do that? And I'm going to start doing something else. So I'm not as good. But the answer is I tend to retire. I don't plan to hopefully be sitting at a desk or standing in a courtroom, you know, late into my 60s. Uh, but I think that I'm going to, my goal is to retire in my 50s. How's that for an answer? Awesome. And you said 2021, you think you have yes, circled. Yes, yeah, cool. Yes. Cool. Well, thanks uh, for reaching out, Kevin. Again, it's Kevin Hazlett. Uh, you can find him all over the internet. And uh, you can, you're very Googleable, Kevin. <laughs> you're, you're very findable. That's the verb, Googleable? Googleable. Yeah, you have to say well, it really fast. I'm going to use that. Okay, <laughs> cool. Thanks again. Uh, please feel free to reach out anytime uh, you think the show is getting a little too dark on the uh, legal profession. <laughs> we'll have you back on and you could give us a shot in the arm. I will, Nathan. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I love your podcast. I think that, you know, this thing, you're going to see the, the way this works. It's going to be like a Boeing 747 that lifts off. It goes slowly and then you're going to get a lot of folks that are going to, because I think word of mouth, you know, I've already told like 10 people, I'm like, you got to listen to this podcast. I'm selling it to all the uh, the kids that I know that are college seniors right now that say, I'm, you know, Mr. Hazel, I'm thinking about going to law. So what should I do? One of the first things I tell them is there's this podcast. Awesome. Well, <laughs> yeah, we appreciate it. I mean, the audience has definitely been growing. So, um, yeah, we, we love doing what we do. Um, OK, thanks again, Kevin, and um, hope to have you back someday. Certainly, Nathan. I'll talk to you soon. Great.